This is Smart Women, Smart Power, a podcast that features conversations with some of the world's most powerful women. The last couple decades, law enforcement has made claims of going dark, which means losing access to suspect communications. Their response to this is to request the design and implementation of exceptional access mechanisms um, into communications infrastructure. We feature women who are breaking barriers and shaping the future of foreign policy, national security, international business and development. I'm Beverly Kirk, the director of the Smart Women Smart Power Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. The Smart Women Smart Power podcast is supported by Raytheon. The 2021 Future Strategy Forum focused on the nexus between national security and technology. This Smart Women Smart Power podcast features a conversation with the winners of the Jan Nolan Prize, a competition to recognize the best new scholarship from young professionals in national and international security. The prize honors the late Dr. Jan Nolan, an expert on nuclear weapons, arms control, and defense strategy who participated in the first ever Future Strategy Forum. The moderator is Rachel Teacott, PhD candidate at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. The Future Strategy Forum is presented by CSIS, the Kissinger Center for Global Affairs at Johns Hopkins SICE, and Bridging the Gap. First things first, introductions. So we have Dr. Jane Vainman, an assistant professor in political science at Temple University, where her research focuses on security cooperation between adversarial states, the design of arms control agreements, and the effects of emerging technology on international institutions. She's a PhD in government from Harvard University. We have Dr. John Emery, a Stanton Nuclear Security Fellow at Stanford University, who will be joining the University of Oklahoma as an assistant professor in the fall. So his research examines national security, the ethics of war and peace, and technological innovation. And he got his PhD in political science from the UC Irvine. We also have with us Ms. Sahar Noman, a principal threat intelligence analyst at BAE Systems Applied Intelligence, where she researches state-sponsored cyber espionage with a focus on the Middle East and specializes in the intersection of geopolitics and cyber operations. Sahar received her master's degree in, inter in intelligence and international security from the Department of War Studies at King's College London. And I believe she's joining us from London today. So thank you very much, Sahar, for staying up late for us this evening. Um, so before we dive into questions, I just wanted to remind all of our viewers that there will be an opportunity at the end of the panel for questions from all of you. So please write your questions for the panelists in the Google form, which you can access on the CSAS Future Strategy Forum website event page or the Future Strategy Forum website, futurestrategyforum.com. Um, okay, so now I'd like to just begin the show by asking each of you to summarize your projects, give us the elevator pitch. Um, so I'll start with Jane and then go to John and then Sahar. Great, thank you. Um, I'm so excited to be part of this conference. In prior years, I've loved watching this conference and all the panels, so it's really quite an honor uh, to be part of it this year. So my research um, looks at how emerging technology affects prospects for arms control. And rather than efforts to control or govern emerging technologies themselves, such as you know, agreements to limit cyber weapons, I was interested in thinking about how emerging technologies might be incorporated into monitoring and information gathering and how that will affect prospects for international cooperation on existing capabilities. So technologies such as small satellites and artificial intelligence affect the amount of information collected or the ease of information processing, all of which is pretty important for a state that might be worried about violations on a deal. Now, the intuition, and I think this is sort of currently the dominant policy narrative, um, it suggests that technologies which improve monitoring should make arms control easier to achieve. I argue that this is not the case, or at least not entirely the case. In an agreement, states face a trade-off between the beneficial and adverse aspects of information. So states need transparency uh, in order to observe behavior and gain some assurance that everyone is complying with an agreement. But at the same time, they need secrecy because revealing too much might allow other states to gain military advantages. The nature of a monitoring technology can directly affect this trade-off between transparency and security. Um, so I think there's three uh, key factors we should use in uh, to assess the potential impact of any particular emerging technology. 
First, we should be looking at how it affects uh, unilateral monitoring capabilities. Second, the degree to which a technology allows states to have demonstrable control over exactly how much information is uh, collected in the process of agreement monitoring. And finally, uh, the effect that a technology might have on concealment. And together, these factors provide um, a systematic and generalizable analytic framework that can be applied to assessing uh, emerging technologies. And so in my work, I um, sort of uh, develop this framework and actually then try to use it to assess um, a number of technologies, satellites, drones, AI, and additive manufacturing. And I come away with some preliminary assessments. I'm generally optimistic about the effects of emerging technology on unilateral monitoring and how that will maybe make cooperation easier. Um, but options for using emerging tech in more intrusive monitoring, such as inspections or remote observation, um, this is likely, I think, to create uh, risks uh, for security and doing so may make states actually more uh, hesitant to sign agreements in the first place. I'll stop here. Thank you so much, Jane. John, jump right in. Thank you so much. It's really an honor to be the recipient of such a prestigious award in honor of Jen Nolan. So I just feel truly, truly humbled and blessed by this experience. So my project looks at early political military wargaming at the Rand Corporation in the 1950s. And I was kind of really inspired by Carol Cohn's work, Sex and Death in the Rational World of the Defense Intellectual uh, from 1987, where she did this kind of famous participant observation of nuclear deterrence theorists. And she talked a lot about how these deterrence theorists would use a techno-strategic language, which was a language filled with abstraction, euphemism, that humanizes insentient weapons and excludes human suffering from this kind of inherently gendered world that nuclear theorists construct as the parameters of legitimate debate. And so you live in this abstract world where you can casually discuss killing millions of people with nuclear weapons with no sense of horror and urgency. So with that kind of drive, I went to the Rand Corporation archives expecting to find that in the early 1950s. I kind of wanted to find the origin stories of those thinkers that laid the foundation of the entire kind of Cold War intellectual landscape to see about how they thought about and grappled with this world of new technologies of nuclear weapons and an unknown future of war. While well, I went in expecting to find a lot of Dr. Strangeloves, what I found in instead was a lot of kind of ethical reflection and a lot of deep thought about these kind of issues and the morality of this. So it wasn't necessarily this kind of uh, groupthink at Rand Corporation, but a huge contestation of ideas. And this really played out kind of most prominently between the mathematics division and the social sciences division. So what I do in the article is I offer a comparative analysis of the two Cold War games that these divergent divisions created. They took different epistemological outlooks and approaches to the world and had vastly different outcomes in their game. And so this Cold War game is kind of the origin story of political military gaming that Reed Polly especially focus on, focuses on in his 2018 international security article at MIT. So understanding this origin story um, provides some useful insights into kind of the dilemmas of technology wargaming in the future of war. And so it's interesting from the mathematical division's perspective, they wanted to integrate politics and economics into traditional wargaming. They wanted to quantify psychologies in order to predict Cold War strategies and their consequences. The social sciences division, in contrast, thought that the mathematicians were stepping on their territory a little bit too much and that they were doing bad science. And so as historian Daniel Bessner argues, the social sciences division of the Cold War game endorsed the idea that political life by definition was unquantifiable. It didn't mean they rejected rationalism, but instead they argued that by reproducing the irrational dynamism of international politics in this war game was a more useful heuristic and more scientific than the mathematician's war game model to understand the world. And what I really liked about this social science game was that they took uncertainty very seriously. They understood the exercise of judgment in international politics. And so the Cold War game of the social science division would rely on players' qualitative knowledge about a given nation's politics, culture, society, on their history, on the psychology of individuals and group dynamics to more accurately represent what a nuclear standoff may look like. And what we had here in the kind of crux of the argument was that we had very divergent 
uh, outcomes. The mathematicians were quickly hurling hydrogen bombs around, calculating mass casualties, the effect on GDP that hydrogen bombs would have, et cetera. Whereas the social scientists had a real kind of restraint, an inability to cross that nuclear threshold. And the game historian noted that the players quickly gained a sense of the awful consequences that result from an ill-advised move. And those who in the classroom and their publications advocated for bold imaginative policies and criticized free world leaders for their timidity usually found themselves behaving with equal caution when they assumed the burden of policymaking in the game. So participants thus tended to judge foreign policy decisions in the real world differently after having played the game. So what I find the interesting puzzle to kind of close out is that they both engaged what, what Carol, with what Carol Cohn would call techno-strategic language, but the social scientists with their kind of high degree of realism engaged this kind of emotional intelligence and ethical practical judgment that resulted in nuclear strain. So in the end, even though they didn't use moral language, they made moral choices. And so this kind of exploration of this proliferation of the social science Cold War game, I think has interesting parallels to the dilemmas we're facing today. Go ahead, Sahar. Hi, um, it's great to be here. Uh, thank you for the to the Future Strategy Forum for having me. And it's an honor to uh, be a winner of the Jan Nolan Prize. And I'm uh, very honored to participate in her legacy in, in this small way. Um, my paper is about, uh, more broadly, the encryption debate, and I use the Apple versus FBI case study uh, for the case from 2016, uh, which is basically analyzed and situated in the broader context of uh, encryption and exceptional access. So generally, uh, for the last couple decades, law enforcement has made claims of going dark, uh, which means losing access to suspect communications. Um, their response to this is to design, uh, request the design uh, um, and implementation of exceptional access mechanisms um, into communications infrastructure. Now, exceptional access means that uh, there'd be a mechanism to subvert the given purposes of a communication system um, so that a third party can access it without the consent of a user. So this debate, this encryption debate, has been going on for several years and is, is lovingly called the crypto wars. Uh, so I kind of take a look at the history of the crypto wars, uh, how encryption has spread and become quite ubiqu ubiquitous in society, um, and then talk about kind of the um, technical, legal, and political aspects of this case and the broader debate. So technically, uh, I, I look at how exceptional access mechanisms are um, vulnerabilities introduced into software uh, or communication systems that actually weaken the security of the systems themselves. Um, legally, I kind of look at the justifications for um, uh, uh, kind of inserting those mechanisms into the communications infrastructure. Uh, and vice versa for not doing so. Um, and kind of politically, I look at the relationship between uh, users, private companies, and the government, uh, and see kind of what the responsibilities um, and, and kind of trust uh, relationships are between them. So really, I'm trying to answer the question uh, about whether exceptional access to counter device encryption um, is damaging to national security. So in the case of Apple F versus FBI, um, there was a shooter in San Bernardino and the FBI needed to get into his iPhone. The iPhone was encrypted as per Apple's design of those products. So they requested that Apple help them get into the phone by creating a flawed uh, software update uh, that would allow them to access it. Now, Apple refused on kind of security and privacy grounds. Uh, the case went to court, although there was never a ruling, uh, because the FBI found a third party to access the phone for them. So that's it's a quite interesting case in that there wasn't a precedent set, uh, but if there had been, it would have been pretty significant for the encryption debate. And so as a lot of people kind of have weighed in about this case and uh, encryption and exceptional access, uh, many think the, the debate shouldn't be settled in court uh, and should rather be settled in Congress. Uh, so really I explored this case from a, a few different perspectives and, and kind of look at what um, you know, critiquing the security versus privacy debate actually means and does this case represent that or is it more security versus security? And I try to bring a little bit of the, the policy angle to it as well. There's been a couple laws in the last couple of years that have been introduced, or, or acts rather, um, that have been introduced in Congress to regulate uh, encryption, which has also played into this debate quite a lot. So I kind of conclude with 
uh, a more complicated answer than yes, it is damaging to national security. Um, but the paper is basically an exploration of this uh, this particular issue and kind of this this iteration of it uh, as it was demonstrated in Apple versus FBI. Thanks so much to each of you. So clearly three very different projects that all touch on very different dimensions of kind of the, the subject of this conference this year, which is emerging technology and national security. Different as they are though, there are some strands that we've that we've across them. So I wanted to pick up on, on, um, on this myth busting element that both Sahar's project and Jane's project uh, share. So you both talk about a myth that emerging technologies that help to increase transparency will necessarily enhance security. So you gave us a little bit of that in your summary, but can you expand a little bit on this myth? Like, what is this myth? Why is it wrong? And yeah, so I'll go to Sahar first and then to Jane. Sure. So it is kind of an interesting take. Transparency is something that people would usually associate with being a good thing. That's kind of the connotation. Uh, in, in my case, uh, the transparency really means increased visibility. So what law enforcement is asking for is a way to circumvent or bypass encryption, which would give them uh, the access that they're looking for to you know, criminals or other suspects' uh, communications or devices, which would theoretically help their cases and uh, you know, increase their visibility and access to data. So the, the paper really talks about how the dichotomy that they're proposing, which is if you give up a little bit of your privacy uh, through you know, allowing us to access these devices, then we can increase the security uh, for, for the public. Now, I, I kind of talk about this as a false dichotomy because security and privacy aren't actually mutually exclusive. They, they kind of go hand in hand. So if you're weakening encryption, which in itself is based on kind of technical cryptographic principles where um, you know, security is absolute security. You are kind of weakening uh, security and privacy, both, both for, for users of these, of these devices. So it's really kind of looking at this marginal benefit for law enforcement while um, being detrimental to uh, society as a whole. Uh, and that's why I kind of, uh, how I explore this, uh, this false dichotomy. So I, I would definitely say that increased visibility in this case is, is um, actually a bad thing in that it um, uh, has kind of um, costs and implications um, that are more damaging uh, than the actual, the marginal benefit that it provides. Thanks. Um, so yeah, this is a really interesting um, parallel between our papers, um, even though they're seemingly on very different topics. And because I also sort of encountered this, this perception that like, oh, an arms control, more transparency is a good thing. We should have more transparency. Um, but arms control is a situation where actors have diverging interests in many respects. And yes, there are some mutual interests, such as you know, maybe not spending a ton of money building really expensive weapons. Um, and cooperation can happen under that condition. But it is also reasonable to expect that each side is still trying to gain an advantage over the other, even while they're cooperating. Now, the uh, relationship between monitoring and intelligence gathering and intelligence information is well known to arms control practitioners. Um, but I think it's often overlooked kind of in the public debate and also in the political science literature that looks at um, security institutions. So, and transparency is indeed good for compliance, uh, but it comes with costs. Um, and I think that a clearer understanding of those costs would make kind of certain situations make more sense in the sense that, for example, that some states would reject agreements, would continue to bear the costs of uh, sanctions and competition if they believe that accepting a deal would give perhaps the US a way to better attack them or better um, undermine their regime in the future. So in the sense, they sort of are avoiding creating a vulnerability through the agreement um, itself. And in terms of technology, sort of monitoring that allows for more effective espionage is essentially going to make the problem worse. It's going to sort of increase the um, vulnerability side, um, create even higher threats um, for, to security. So as we assess technology, we really need to think about sort of, does this technology make it easier or more difficult to draw the line between what is revealed and what is kept secret? And some technologies, I think, like um, AI, they could actually really blur that line. Um, so if information, for example, is collected do it during an inspection and is being integrated into 
analysis by some algorithm and combined with extra information, that's probably really good for being able to detect non-compliance. But um, as the monitored party, I don't know what your AI capabilities can do. I don't even know what small bits of detail information might be important to hide. And I fear that the small detail will enable your AI tools to uncover all these security vulnerabilities. Now, I might be wrong, um, but I don't want to risk it. And maybe I'm not going to sign an agreement at all. I might be more likely to sign an agreement that actually uses tools that provide for less transparency. So in a sense, yes, transparency can be good uh, for, and technology sort of can be good for transparency, uh, but it's ultimately maybe not so good for getting a mutually acceptable deal. So, so I want to press on this question of how, how do we answer this question? How do we answer the question of how transparency will affect arms control, how emerging technologies will affect transparency and will then affect arms control? Um, given that, you know, stepping back, this is a conference about emerging technology and national security. So this is a very, very difficult set of issues to study um, for data classification reasons, for by virtue of the fact that the technology itself is emerging. And so we don't know a lot about it yet. Um, we're often studying hypothetical scenarios that haven't actually occurred. So you you have to deal with a really difficult set of questions and we don't really have the luxury of saying, ah, it's hard, so we won't study it because these are questions that policymakers need to get into now. These are important questions for us to, to not kind of let slide by. So I wanna ask Jane and John, both how do you think about these questions of, um, of how you study these really difficult these really difficult questions? So let's start with Jane and then go to John. Sure, yeah, this is such an interesting question. Um, and right, because it's like, not only is information about some of the de emerging technologies that I'm interested, just you know, not available to me as an independent researcher, but it's also not available kind of in general because we don't know how it's going to be applied, right? And a lot of the things that I was looking at, I'm sort of, I'm kind of trying to think through how it could be applied to uh, agreement monitoring, not how that's actually happening right now. So I think that sort of my approach to this was, and how I, I think is one way to go about it at least, is kind of um, developing a process for how to think about it, right? Developing the set of questions and the set of criteria for doing an evaluation, even if the ultimate evaluation that you can do right now is still incomplete. So you can use it to start with what you have now, but then you're actually still able to use that sort of framework um, to assess new information as it comes in. And you can be able to tell whether new information kind of supports your initial assessments or actually turns them on their heads. Um, for example, I was trying to think through in this um, kind of the problem of spoofing in AI, which I was kind of trying to get my head around is essentially kind of how big of a problem is this, especially when it comes to, you know, these um, algorithms being used to sort of track weapons capabilities, can you really spoof that? Um, and in considering these kinds of scenarios, I think what will be important is sort of assessing sort of which will be sort of, like which, how will the technology emerge into what will start to be easier, the spoofing side or the detecting spoofing side. Um, and I think that as that information becomes available or as it changes with technology over time, I'll be able to sort of essentially use the framework I've already developed to draw a conclusion or draw an implication um, from technological developments that continue to occur. At least that's, a, that's one approach that I've taken. I think there are multiple approaches to taking to sort of studying something where there is less information or no information available yet. Um, but I think that's, that's at least one approach that I've taken in this work. An improvement on a shrug approach. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And I think Jane's uh, framework approach is, is especially helpful in thinking through the, some of these dilemmas of emerging technologies. I think it's probably pretty obvious already I take a more historical approach. And so the thing I was most struck by kind of digging through the RAND archives and trying to get into their mindset and mentality was how much uh, their kind of early 1950s moment parallels a lot of the same dilemmas that we're facing today, right? You have this new kind of emerging technology with nuclear weapons. You have kind of no empirical basis. Thankfully, there's never been a nuclear exchange between superpowers. And 
you have new methods for studying it, right? The very kind of birth of mathematics game theory. And already in 1954, they're talking about utilizing computers to solve a lot of these dilemmas, right? So even though you know technology has exploded today, I think there's a lot of useful parallels there for thinking about emerging tech, AI, and the kind of methods we use to study the world. And I think the way we get history wrong a lot of times is that we have the benefit of hindsight, right? We know the outcome, what happened. And what we miss there is when we draw these kind of causal processes is we miss the contestation and the uncertainty kind of inherent in those moments. And so what I really like about the social sciences division at Rand Corporation in the 50s is that they really wanted to highlight this uncertainty. You know, figures like Machiavelli have called it Fortuna. We talk about the fog of war, some say chance, et cetera. But how do you really grapple with that for this kind of unknown future of war? Um, Joseph Goldson, one of the designers of the game, said that no government is absolutely free to impose its will on the world. All operate under some constraints and all must operate with incomplete information about the present and the future. And all must expect the unexpected to interfere with their best laid plans. World political history is replete with examples of Pyrrhic victories and conversely with situations thought to be defeats at the time, which turned out to be blessings in disguise. How to allow for such considerations in evaluating real or game simulated political developments is a formidable problem indeed. Right, so I think that kind of captures this moment really, really nicely. And the way they tackled it in this game was they created something called the Committee on Nature to kind of interfere with the players of the game. And the role of nature was to provide for events um, that happen in the real world that are not under control of any government. Things like technological developments, death of important people, non-governmental political action, famines, popular disturbances, etc. So you had this nature committee that was essentially interfering with the kind of structure of the play of the game, the way the, the, way that the kind of real world comes at you. So for them, it posed this vital function, since without it, reality would be reduced to kind of government-initiated action. So I really like the framework that they used to tackle this, and I think wargaming offers us one of those, uh, one of those ways to kind of think through the dilemmas of emerging tech in kind of really serious and scientific ways. So, John, I wanted to pick up on this point of this wargaming and go a little bit deeper on this. Uh, so you took us back to wargaming at RAND in the 1950s, um, and we're going to close Future Strategy Forum with Dr. Jackie Schneider's virtual wargame, which ex examines the implications of new technologies for deterrence, crisis stability, and escalation. Um, and there's been some something of uh, what people are calling a wargaming renaissance going on in DOD and academia. So can you just tell us a little bit more about how you think about wargames as a method for research and for policy? Sure, yeah, I'm really happy to be uh, kind of working on this at a time where there happens to be a renaissance. It wasn't something I had kind of predicted at the time doing the more kind of historical work, but it's really exciting to be a part of. And I think wargaming offers us a lot of ways to kind of tackle these these dilemmas and not necessarily solve the problems, but to help us raise the right questions, right? To see if some of our intuitions are right, they may be wrong, and you can kind of test that empirically. I know Jackie Schneider, uh, Reed Polly, and Eric Lynn Greenberg have a great working paper on uh, wargaming for research methods in political science. Um, that's a really fantastic framework for how we're thinking through about kind of different ways of using wargamings for things like cyber, AI, drones. Um, et cetera. Um, Ellie Bartels at the Rand Corporation has done some really great work on epistemology of wargaming, so helping us think through kind of broader notions of science and the art of wargaming as well. So there's some really exciting work going on there. And I think well-designed games can really be effective tools for understanding and judgment, understanding psychology, group dynamics, and the role that uncertainty and emotion kind of always plays in decision-making. And I think the process of play can influence our behavior and that can help us to build good habits, right? So I think you can, um, when you encounter new or unknown situations that are kind of outside of our normal analytical frameworks, uh, we don't necessarily know how to respond. And Jackie Schneider's work in a different paper talks about how we really try to seek cognitive closure very quickly and that can really lead us astray. And it can be dangerous if you're a decision maker on issues of national security, war and peace. So I think there's a real benefit to wargaming, even just for the sake of wargaming, to build better habits, to improve one's judgments in the face of uncertainty and to cultivate this kind of emotional intelligence that I found in the early 1950s wargame to better model human behavior. I think it's especially relevant on the topic that uh, Jane's um, 
discussing today, the, the prospect of AI especially, you know, it's not just what the AI can do, it's what we believe it can do, right, as decision makers. And we create a lot of myths around AI. So I think wargaming can be especially useful for thinking about this human-machine interaction and thinking about the psychology of those dynamics and how it frames our decision making. Moving back uh, to our questions here uh, and to an entirely different topic. So this is a bit of a roller coaster panel. So each of your projects addresses in very different ways the intersections between ethics, norms, values, and emotions on the one hand, and good research, good strategy on the other, or perhaps they're complementary and intertwined necessarily. So could you each speak to this intersection a little bit more, how this informs your work? So we'll start with Sahar and then we'll go to John and then Jane. So uh, yeah, the question of ethics is actually really interesting in, in my paper. I don't explicitly address it, but it actually underlies quite a lot of the concepts in there. I think you could probably write a whole separate paper on the issue of ethics uh, and talking about uh, security and privacy uh, kind of issues in this context. So there's a couple of threads I want to pull out. Uh, so one is what the government is asking for in this, in this particular case, uh, Apple versus FBI, is a version of the operating system for the phone um, that has a vulnerability vulnerability in it or a backdoor. Now, these legitimate software updates that are you know, pushed to computers and to phones underpin the whole software ecosystem. So they're verified by security protocols like unique cryptographic keys, which are basically saying the developer it has assured the user that uh, the software is uh, trustworthy, the code is trustworthy, and it functions um, as it's supposed to. So if the government is asking for a systematic compromise uh, of those updates, then users uh, can't be assured that the uh, about the security of their devices, um, which means they're not going to patch them, they're not going to keep them up to date, um, and that it's going to leave them and their devices vulnerable to uh, other threats, basically. So you can look at a really significant, uh, a couple of really significant examples in the last couple of years that demonstrate this uh, to see the impact of what um, having control over uh, something like a software update uh, can can really mean. So one that some may have heard of is um, uh, NotPetya, uh, the wiper that um, hit several organizations back in 2017 um, and basically wiped their data. And uh, that particular um, destructive attack was regarded as one of the most financially damaging um, that we've ever seen. And that was done through uh, the compromised software update um, of an accounting software that was popular in, in Ukraine. So having control over uh, such a fundamental part of the, the uh, kind of software ecosystem and that uh, infrastructure is, is really powerful. Um, another example is more recent, which you also might have heard of, is the SolarWinds uh, campaign. And in that, um, uh, the Russians uh, basically did the same thing and compromised this uh, software update of an IT management uh, product that SolarWinds makes called Orion. Um, and in the same way, they they uh, were able to uh, kind of conduct these intrusions into um, you know government agencies, other high-profile organizations, and that basically became uh, quite a, a massive um, event and incident in the news. Um, and and comes back to the question of the you know kind of security and and trust in in that particular software and the infrastructure, um, and and in those cases you know these were rogue states in both cases it was Russia but the principle is is kind of still the same so you're introducing a vulnerability um, into uh, into the software which automatically means that it's opening it to opening it up to threats um, and uh, people who would uh, abuse it or use it maliciously in some way. So now imagine what would happen if you put uh, a government-sanctioned backdoor uh, in, in, in the software um, as opposed to uh, a malicious actor creating it and then using it for, for malicious purposes. Not only would they have introduced this permanent um, you know, method of access into user devices, but also it opens up the opportunity for other actors to piggyback off of that. Uh, same access already. Again, the the kind of technical principles that underlie this um, this particular topic are are sound and they are um, pretty much unflinching. Um, the more complexity you introduce into a system, the more vulnerability there is, and the more chance there is for or opportunity there is for exploitation. So basically, exceptional access uh, or or creating backdoors is really uh, um, kind of uh, kind of pushes the the. Um, the discussion in the in the ethics debate because uh, you're really talking about significant uh, kind of security and privacy implications and I think there's uh, kind of another example that would introduce um, uh, kind of the privacy uh, impact as well uh, in a different way which is um, a couple of years ago um, uh, Apple was looking to move um, uh, its 
um, to change the terms of its um, iCloud service and move the data uh, into servers that were hosted in China by a Chinese uh, company. And uh, basically, this is creating the um, you know the situation that the Chinese government could access the data if they wanted, uh, because maybe potentially parts of iCloud weren't encrypted, which means um, or even if they were, uh, China could serve uh, kind of Apple with a with a warrant and say we want access to this data. So um, you know we know that you know legality and ethics are not uh, equivalent, and uh, there's kind of different frameworks that you're going to need to approach this. But if we as the West would kind of um, you know, object to that kind of uh, infringement on, um, you know, a, a right to privacy and uh, oppose a, another government from accessing user data, then, you know, why wouldn't we object to it uh, here in the U.S. as well? So, um, yeah, I think the, the question of ethics kind of is always bubbling under the surface uh, of this topic um, because it gets quite um, uh, sensitive and, and um, affects issues of, of security and privacy. Yeah, thanks so much, Sahar. I'm like nervously gazing down at my iPhone now, <laughs> wondering what's going on. So really interested to read your paper. I think I think ethics is obviously quite central, um, quite central in my work. And I think we have this tendency, and I think it's a wrong tendency, to view emotion as having a negative impact on decision making, right? We want to try and be these kind of idealized, rational actors. And what I demonstrate in this paper is that through this kind of immersive war game with a high level of realism, that emotion actually has a positive impact on decision making. You have real nuclear restraint. And that's what Corey Shockey was able to point out to me in kind of our workshop of this paper is that even though they didn't use moral language, you still had moral outcomes. So that's kind of an interesting puzzle for me. How do you get it if you're not talking about ethics explicitly? How does it lead you to kind of these moral outcomes? And I build on kind of Reed Polly's 2018 International Security article where he studied Lincoln Bloomfield's uh, MIT political military games from 1958 to 1964. And he found the same thing, that uh, decision makers were really hesitant to press the button. The reason com uh, and the logics uh, that he found were that they kind of comport most strongly with logics of deterrence, practicality, and, and reputation. And there was no evidence of kind of explicit ethical arguments. And so what I argue is that um, this kind of originary war game that kind of morphed into this MIT war game that uh, Reed studied uh, was that ethics was excluded as kind of a de facto non-rational discourse, right? You would be laughed out of the room if you were talking about ethics. And yet it bubbled up through the kind of lens of emotion. So in Polly's work, only two out of 26 games over that period went nuclear. But when they did, they felt really bad about it. So one participant reflected that it was really sobering for him and disturbing to realize that a handful of men in the United States and Soviet Union um, can decide the fate of hundreds of millions, including many not in either country, right? And Lincoln Bloomfield himself said that sometimes coming out of the war games uh, was like coming out of a deep sleep after a particularly vivid dream. It takes time for the carryover of the emotional content of the game to wear off. To wear off. And so you see all of these kind of throughout the weight of emotion, how it plays. So even though techno-strategic language excludes ethical arguments, there's something there about the process of physical play that engages our emotions, and I argue our ethical intuitions. And so Valerie Markavicic has a great article called Tin Men Ethics, um, talking about kind of AI and lethal autonomous weapon systems. And she argues that emotions can help us to act morally by informing our moral intuition, by generating empathy and holding us accountable for our choices. Our emotions as expressions of our inner soul or our conscience uh, actually guide us toward more ethical behavior. And so I think that that's a kind of good way of framing this that, you know, even though you may not get answers from war games that might be empirically valid in the world, there's still something valuable about playing them because it does engage you emotionally in a way that your writing may not. And I think that's an important process, especially for policymakers and decision makers on issues of war and peace. So third myth busted across the projects. The emotions complicate uh, decision making in a bad way. They can they could be a boon to to policy making decision making. Jane, over to you. Yeah, so I'll, I'll just briefly pick up on maybe not the ethics side of your question, but the norms and beliefs um, element of it. Something that I've encountered is um, sort of in the sort of arms control context. Um, things that I would normally assume or initially assume to be the product of some deliberate calculation or, or analysis is actually the product of a normative belief or a practice or an assumption. So for example, like 
how sure do you have to be that another state is not cheating um, in an arms control deal? Um, maybe you'd think that sort of the level of how sure you need to be depends on sort of what the deal gets you or how bad cheating is. But in reality, um, it also has a lot to do with um, biases and beliefs and, of course, domestic debates in U.S. politics, which have a lot to do with biases and beliefs and much less to do with the sort of the deals themselves. So the sort of what does it mean to be sufficiently sure is a pretty arbitrary and subjective uh, judgment. And in thinking about kind of what happens when we start um, introducing emerging technology questions into that space, um, I think it'll be very challenging to unpack um, the sort of the assumptions about risk and uncertainty. So some technologies, right, you might think that um, uh, satellite, advanced satellite surveillance, uh, they narrow uncertainty in, in pretty big ways. Um, but at the same time, the increasingly public accessibility of these capabilities may also make it more difficult for states to leverage that uncertainty to negotiate privately, for example. Um, AI seems to have sort of big analytic advantages, but it also, research has shown that AI fails in strange and unexpected ways, creating new uncertainties of its own. Now, how will that interact with a policy debate, sort of an arms control policy debate, which is often pretty locked into a seemingly um, binary view about whether or not a deal is verifiable or not, um, which is not really something you're going to get um, as an answer from incorporating an emerging technology. Thanks. So we're going to turn now to some questions from um, from our audience. And uh, I have to say, it's almost as if they're all coordinated with each other because they they follow each other really beautifully. So we'll see if we can if we can get to, to all of them. So first, Suzanne from MIT asks, what are the key policy recommendations from Saher's work to the tech world and government and to the nuclear policymakers from Jane's work? Um, and I'll, I'll put the question to John, too, if there are policy prescriptions that flow from your work. Uh, welcome to chime in on that as well. So let's start with Saher. So um, this is a really tricky one to recommend policies for because it's a it's kind of a highly politicized debate. And to be honest, if there was a solution already, um, you know, we wouldn't still be having the debate. Um, and so, you know, first and foremost, it seems kind of obvious, but um, I don't think it's the kind of necessarily prevalent view. Don't ban encryption. Uh, don't regulate encryption. Um, there have been a couple attempts, and I think it's something that, uh, you know, policymakers should understand that it's a technology uh, that has, you know, um, you know, been around since the 70s or 80s. It's not going anywhere. It's now spread further than ever. A lot of companies are building uh, encryption into their services and their products. Uh, it's here to stay, and it's a good thing. It's it's to secure data, and it's to uh, keep it private. So it does serve a lot of purposes, and I don't think you know, uh, you know, the government would argue that it's a bad thing either, um, because it obviously helps them as well. Um, so I think one of the most important things is to really, in in this particular case, uh, as with I'm sure many other issues, is listen to the experts, the technical experts who are, um, you know, who have done, uh, you know so much research on the topic and demonstrated again and again, um, you know, that in cryptography and in encryption, um, you know, these are absolutes that we're talking about. Security has to be absolute. If you're weakening it in any way, uh, it's weakening it for everybody and uh, it compromises the whole system. So I think uh, regulating encryption is uh, a bad idea. Um, uh, other than that, uh, I do think that there should be uh, kind of more participation from academia, from the industry. Um, there, I think there is a really big gap between kind of technology and uh, the policy world. Um, and there's probably very few people who actually are able to, you know, uh, speak to both and are kind of fluent in that in, in both of those languages. And I think there's there's quite a gap. So I think that gap really needs to be bridged um, because, again, they're two very separate areas, but, um, you know, they're they're heavily intertwined over a lot of different subject areas. Um, so kind of uh, enforcing that public-private partnership and making sure that, um, you know, the expertise is, is kind of first and foremost um, being communicated uh, to policymakers is, is really important. Should I go next? Sure. Um, so there's, yeah, so there's a number of policy implications and I'll just um, quickly highlight two. First, I think um, we should be uh, thinking 
a lot about the possibilities for agreements uh, with no intrusive monitoring, essentially agreements that don't rely on the inspections regimes that many have come to accept as sort of best practices. Um, I think there can be important advantages in refocusing that verifiability conversation on uh, maybe like international technical means, um, sort of what states can achieve using non-intrusive and primarily publicly available data sources. Um, second, um, the use of emerging technology in intrusive verification, it does have exciting promise, but addressing that transparency security trade-off um, is critical to sort of be able to move forward with any of this. And sort of states have to be able to demonstrate information to one another. One path forward here could be the joint development or co-development of technology applications alongside experts in other countries. So there might be no way to convince another country that you know our AI tool is doing what we say it's doing and no way that I'm going to believe that from somebody else. But if we build a whole um, new AI application together from the ground up, the understanding of its capacity and limits might be greater. And sort of this, this point on technical cooperation is not a new idea. The US and the Soviet Union did this during the Cold War, even during moments of really poor relations. But I think um, it now has a uh, renewed imperative um, in light of the opportunities and uncertainties provided by some of these emerging technologies. Yeah, and I'll just offer kind of two policy prescriptions and one that really came out in kind of Jane's paper is taking uncertainty seriously and recognizing that you can never fully eliminate it, right? I think there's a real danger today um, that we seek certainty in kind of the rigorous outputs of AI and quantitative analyses that they offer us some form of kind of objective number by which to make decisions. But we have to remain cognizant of the fact that human judgment always goes into the operationalization of the kind of programming that leads to these outputs. And the fundamental assumptions we make in our modeling of the social world throughout history have often been proven wrong. And so to look at a point that Sana made on the panel earlier today is that you know, artificial intelligence is always imbued with uh, assumptions about programming, about the values, about our society. And so numbers can tend to be subductive for their supposed objectivity, but they can also just as easily lead us astray if they're not accurate representations of the social world. So never neglect the kind of chaos and uncertainty of human agency, especially when it comes to war and these novel technologies. And I think the second point that Zahair kind of highlights is uh, the necessity of interdisciplinarity, right? We need to be having communications with technical experts. So those of us in academia or in the policy world have a good understanding of the capabilities of these technologies that we're using and not just a myth or an idea that artificial intelligence is somehow better than human judgment. And simultaneously with that, you can get a group together to really understand kind of psychology, the dynamics, the experience, um, and not necessarily to eliminate emotion in the kind of decision-making process, but to cultivate it through the practice, through kind of kind of ethical, practical judgment um, in security affairs. Thanks. So we have two questions that I'm going to pair together. So I want to preface the questions by saying that the Future Strategy Forum, one of, one of its missions, one of its goals is to take academic thinking and to bridge the divide to policy and to sort of make the case almost that that isn't necessarily such a such a big divide and that academia does inform uh, policy in myriad ways. And so these two questions kind of speak to that in, in, in different ways. So I'm going to ask them together for you to, in, in our remaining few minutes, you can kind of each take a stab at them to the extent you'd like to. So Emma from MIT asks, as part of FSF, we have a co cohort of current graduate students who are all dedicated and interested in these topics. Where do you think are areas that would benefit from further research? And then Diana from the University of Chicago Naval Postgraduate School asks, have you found there to be a tension between the policy relevance of your work and political science disciplinary norms or the demands academia places on early career researchers? And how have you managed it? So. Uh, we can let's see let's why don't we reverse the order uh, that we started in we can go john jane Sahar. yeah absolutely fantastic questions and i think there's pretty much we're at a time where there's unlimited research in the academic field that needs to be done and a lot of it is policy relevant so i think if you're part of the future strategy forum you're already trying to tackle these issues and i think one way that we can do it is try and tackle it in novel ways right we often get we often get uh, stuck in kind of our academic debates and we miss the kind of big picture. And that's why 
you know, looking back to kind of historical analogies or things like that can be useful because it gives you something concrete rather than just kind of abstract theorizing. So I think that's helpful. And I think there is a tension between, you know, the kind of difficulties of being an early career scholar in academia and the tension of policy relevance. So I think get involved as much as you can in CSIS, other think tanks, and, uh, and do what you can to get involved and have that impact on policy. So through this research, I was able to join in some military and civilian wargaming at the Rand Corporation. And it was really insightful for me to understand how military decision makers think very differently uh, than I would, but how we can really inform each other. So get involved as much as you can. Thanks. Um, yeah, that's an excellent point. And I, I think that while there are tensions between policy relevant um, work and research and some of the norms within political science. Maybe this is a controversial thing to say, but I kind of think that the degree of that tension or that dispute is maybe itself a mis myth that should be busted. Um, I don't know. I think a lot of great emerging work in security studies is both rigorous political science and policy relevant. And I would just say, I don't know, more doing and less arguing about it. Lastly, quickly, I would uh, definitely echo what, what Jane and John said. Um, uh, and if you're interested in things like emerging technologies and security, um, you know, get into cybersecurity. I, I have to tell you, it wasn't my initial uh, kind of path in my career that I was planning on, but you'd be shocked at how, you know, little kind of social sciences and humanities are represented in this field and how, you know, necessary and, and quite crucial they are, uh, because that perspective is just, uh, you know, kind of not there. The critical thinking skills, the analysis skills, um, you, uh, that the field could really benefit from kind of broadening uh, the scope there in terms of people who are who are entering the field. So um, yeah, your skills and, and kind of knowledge definitely apply. That's something I would definitely recommend uh, thinking about. I'll also just chime in and echo uh, Jane's point. I, I kind of also take the the view that this is almost a, this tension, this um this divide between academia and policy. Although it is there, the size might be a bit uh, overestimated these days, uh, in part because of really good work that's been done by CSIS, by the Kissinger Center, um, War on the Rocks, TNSR, even Twitter. You know, for for better and for worse. I think there are just there's so many opportunities for scholars to find ways to communicate their research uh, to a, a policy audience. Um, and also, when academics go into policy directly, that's another way for academia or at least you know the training to inform the way that the work is done so yeah I, I've, I've been um, kind of excited to, to see how many opportunities there are to bridge that divide so okay with that we have about a few minutes left I'm gonna just turn the floor over to Jane who I think wanted to lead us in in a toast thank you um, thank you Rachel for moderating this um, excellent panel um, so I just wanted to sort of close our discussion um, and as a final note I would like to raise a toast to and ask my co-panelists to join me in raising a toast uh, to Jan Nolan. She supported uh, emerging scholars and I think uh, she really encouraged confidence in working on unpopular opinions or untrendy topics um, because as she said, you are probably right and everyone else is just missing something important. Uh, she probably would have uh, found video conferences to be horribly tiresome and would have enjoyed everyone uh, mingling and meeting uh, after a panel like this one. Um, so here's also to doing that next time. Cheers. Thank you so much, Jane. And thanks to each of our panelists for a conversation that took us from nuclear war games at RAND in the 1950s to exceptional access for targeted surveillance to how emerging technologies may shape the future of arms control. Talked about intellectual myths. I think we, we hit on four myths by the end of this conversation, research methodology and ethics. Uh, I learned so much from our conversation today and I can't wait to see your papers in print. Subscribe to the Smart Women Smart Power podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to good content. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Smart Women, and I'm at Beverly Kirk. Thanks for listening. See you next time. The Smart Women Smart Power podcast is supported by Raytheon. Hello, I am Mariana Campero, host of CSIS's Mexico Matters podcast. Our August 12th episode features former CIA Director General David Petraeus to discuss how current events in Mexico 
are affecting North American integration as well as the competitive profile of the United States as it competes against China and much more. To tune in, please listen to Mexico Matters on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or directly on our CSIS website. Thank you very much.